You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. More than 50 people turned up to a town hall meeting at the Disabled Veterans Hall last night. It was organized by law firms who represent families who are filing claims against the Navy for contaminating their drinking water. It was the first meeting since attorneys took the first step to sue the military on behalf of three active duty personnel. Two of the three officers spoke at the meeting via Zoom. Amanda Fiend now lives uh, in Colorado and Coda Freeman lives in California. Fiend is a um, Army major and mother of two young children. She served for 17 years in the military, and while she says she knows her career is on the line, she felt she had no choice but to speak out on behalf of her family after unexplained illnesses and a frustrating time living on Ford Island during the water contamination crisis. I was forced to take the military hat off and put the mom hat on, which, you know, if you're a parent, you know, that's that's my whole responsibility is to protect my children. And the military sort of took that right away from me when they failed to warn us about the exposure. And then when they failed to take care of us and, you know, my children were also at the on-base child development center and we were being lied to as parents. We were told that our kids were getting clean water since the 29th of November, which ironically was the same day that the Department of the Health put out a public health advisory to not drink the water. However, all of us on base, we weren't tracking that because on that same day, our base commander told us, you know, there's no indication that the water is unsafe. In fact, you know, our entire staff is still drinking it. And they completely downplayed the significance of what was happening. And I think they sort of aired on on the side of our ignorance that a lot of us, you know, in the military are trained to, you know, sort of fall in line to listen to those folks who have been put in and entrusted in these senior positions that they are putting out, you know, timely and accurate information. And there's a sense of trust. There's there's trust in our leadership. And there's also an extra sense of security when you are living on base, both with the child development centers and your own home. You feel that you are in a safe environment. And I've had a target on my back since day one when I started speaking out at town halls. Then that progressed as I started contacting congressional leaders. Um, and so I've, I've been asked this question before, like, why are you speaking out? It is a risk to your career. And, I, and I've, I've continued to say that the risk in not speaking out is far greater here. This is not a situation that this can be swept under the rug. We're talking about people's lives. You know, we are very connected with the Camp Lejeune community. Those folks have opened their arms to us in day one, and we know the very reality that we face if we allow the military to treat us like they have that Camp Lejeune community. And for us, we refuse to be betrayed, which is what happened, and we refuse to be left behind. Um, there's too much at stake here. And what type of symptoms were you folks experiencing? So initially, before we even found out that we were drinking contaminated water or living at home with, you know, toxic harmful air that we were breathing in every day, you know, we started feeling extremely lethargic. We were having headaches. My husband was experiencing vertigo. You know, I, my son was 13 months old. And so at that age, you know, they're not, he's not showering or swimming around. He's, we were submerging him just from like waist down in the bath. And that's where he had these terrible rashes from just waist down. And we kept getting all these topical creams and things from his pediatrician Never once did we consider it was the water. In fact, when the creams and things weren't working, I, as a mom, thought, what can I do to soothe my baby? So I went out and bought some Adeno baby bath soaks, and I kept soaking him in the water, unknowing that I was actually doing more harm. And, you know, obviously I live with a lot of mom guilt over that. So it turns out they weren't just random rashes. They were chemical burns from the water. Then, you know, as time progressed, I mean, we just kept getting sick, to be completely honest. And for reasonably thinking people, I can't tell you how many COVID tests we bought. We just kept getting sick. Again, like our kids were in the CDC, the Child Development Center. We thought maybe they're just picking up stuff from, you know, we just never once considered. But we were nauseous, um, constantly sick, super tired, the headaches, you know, the vertigo. And then once the water crisis really impacted our our, our neighborhood, when we ended up in the hospital is um, I was feeling like full body, like sweat. Like I, I'm like, I'm 30. I think I was 36 or 37 at the time. I'm like, am I under menopause here? Like I didn't know what was going on with my body. When I ended up in the hospital, extreme pain, like the only thing I can compare it to is labor pain, abdominal cramping, you know, just explosive diarrhea. We couldn't control our bowels. You know, I lived in adult depend for about a week growing up, 
you know, all of those initial symptoms. Another thing I want to mention, too, is that we lived in Hawaii before we lived in on-base housing. We lived, you know, off-base. And as soon as we moved into that home, my son developed this awful cough. And I say to the state, like, I don't know my son without a cough anymore because he just, it just kept getting worse and worse. It would never go away. And the, you know, tripler just kept calling it the CDC crud, you know, mm-hmm. and we just were like, okay, he's got the CDC crud. And they'd give him all these over-the-counter cough medicines and things like that, and it would never help. And turns out my son has lung damage. We, when we were able to move off island and seek care that we were not getting there in Hawaii, you know, we were seen by a child pulmonologist. They're being seen here at Children's Hospital. And they went in and they did a bronchoscope and a bronchiolovage and found that my son had lung damage. And so did my daughter. They were one in three at the time of exposure. One in three, okay. Part of the reason why, you know, we are filing suit is that we've been left with another, with, with no other choice. Like, there is not a piece of legislation that covers family members when they are impacted by a toxic exposure domestically at the hands of the government or a military asset, which is what happened here. We begged, when we went to the hospital, we begged for testing. We knew that there was a water crisis. We knew that we were exposed to toxic water and air. And we begged for hair, urine, blood, skin, some sort of testing, and we were refused. When my kids ended up in the hospital, they were given an otter pop, which is like a rehydration popsicle, Mm -hmm. and liquid Zofran. And then we were sent on our way. We were denied any sort of testing. So that was Army Major Amanda uh, Find, one of the plaintiffs taking the government to court over tainted Red Hill water. Uh, another uh, one of the plaintiffs is Coda Freeman, a naval officer who has served for 12 years. He says his family's experience with water contamination has taken a toll on his wife and his three children who were here in the islands from 2021 until last year when they moved to San Diego. We just saw a deep uh, decline in you know our family's health. My wife, uh, she had a pre-existing seizure disorder, and that disorder kind of ran rapid. It had been under control for about two and a half years uh, prior to coming out to Hawaii, and then she was having uh, back-to-back breakthrough uh, seizures. Our children were were missing school a lot. It was, you know, also in that time where you know COVID was was a big deal uh, still. So our kids were missing school a lot, and every time you know we would go and get a COVID test, uh, assuming it was COVID. And they would come back negative, uh, and they would just it would just kind of rinse and repeat uh, with that. And then our youngest son, he kind of uh, he regressed uh, quite a bit. Before we got to the island, you know, we had doctor's appointments with all of our kids, and he was you know hitting all of his markers and everything like that. But by the time we left the island in February, our youngest son he was back in diapers and he wouldn't speak. So there was a there was a quick decline in his. With his help. I'm not sure what the circumstances were if you were one of the families that sought refuge in the hotels. Yeah, so we did. We were able to get a, a hotel. My wife also worked out of our home, so that kind of posed a, a little bit of a, a problem for us. So we would have to go back to our house, not not fully understanding that, you know, just being in the house and the fumes and everything were also causing issues. So we would go back to the house, not use the water, but head back there so, you know, my wife could, could, could continue her work and then head back to be at the hotel on during, you know, at night to take showers and, and things like that. What made you decide to finally leave Hawaii? Really, uh, the culmination of everything was at, actually at a doctor's appointment. So my wife's seizures were, were pretty out of control. She was having multiple seizures a day at that point. And so we went up to Tripler, one of our many, um, you know, either ER visits or doctor visits up at Tripler during this period of time. Uh, and we got a neurologist and he is actually the one that associated her breakthrough seizures and her back-to-back seizures with the actual jet fuel, the environmental toxins that were coming from all that. So it was off of his recommendation that they could not provide proper care on the island and that the only way to essentially get her out of the cycle that she was in was to try to get her out of the exposure and off the island. So that's what kind of kick-started us trying to get off of the, off of the island. The step to, you know, join a lawsuit, you know, my understanding is that, you know, prior to this point, it was just spouses 
of uh, military personnel. You know, it, it's a big step to take. I'm about 12 years in. I've been around a little while. It is a big step to take. You know, there's a lot of uh, different, you know, things that can come of this. But but really, uh, you know, I, I feel like you just need to stand up sometimes on what you, what you believe in. I think accountability and getting the truth from all this is, is a big deal. There was an opportunity for the government to come out and say, hey, there's a leak, uh, you know, don't drink the water, the water's not safe. They didn't take that opportunity. And unfortunately, there is, you know, thousands and thousands of people that are still there in Hawaii uh, and that have left the island that are going to have to deal with the consequences of that for the rest of their lives. Uh, you know, so that's, that's, that's a big deal. And we're one of those families that are going to have to deal with those consequences. Have you been to a number of these town hall meetings? What was your takeaway uh, from last night's meeting? My wife and I have been to quite a few of those virtually because they started holding those town halls after we had left the island. The one last night, I hope it, you know, in seeing me and uh, Mandy kind of talk and, and talk with uh, Lyle and, and Christina and Jim that, you know, if they're they're interested in going this route, they're, you know, you don't have to take the route that me and Mandy are taking where we're a little bit more vocal. We're letting people know. We're just kind of get, getting the word out there so people know that this, this route is available because, you know, I'll tell you firsthand, there's a lot of juniors, sailors, airmen, Marines, and soldiers that, that don't know. And I would venture to guess that there's a lot of those that don't even know about the leak or are just not well informed about it. So this is our way to kind of try to educate some of those junior, you know, military members on what's going on and, and some of the rights that they have. During the last night's town hall, there was a gentleman that, that stepped forward, you know, I don't know his name. We're way more concerned about what's gonna happen to our children than, than what's gonna actually happen to us. And that's, you know, that's another reason for filing this, you know, as a, a active duty service member. I am far less worried about what's going to happen to me than what's going to happen, you know, to to our children. And I don't know if I said it last night in the town hall, but from here on out, their you know yearly checkups are probably you know going to be more recent than that. They're probably bi-yearly checkups are going to be a little bit different. You know, they're going to be cancer checkups amongst other things, uh, just to see what's going on in their body and what kind of harm uh, these forever chemicals are doing now. So, yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a big stressor for a lot of these uh, the parents that are affected by all this is because, you know, they're, they're sitting there, they're, they're watching their kids' health decline. There's not much that they can do about it, you know, because either they're not getting the, the medical assistance that they need to try to figure out or replenish what's going on in their kids' bodies, or uh, the doctors just simply don't know how to handle it or what to do. We have heard from Navy Ensign Coda Freeman and Army Major Amanda Fine, two active duty officers who are taking the first steps to sue the military over the fuel contamination of their drinking water while they were stationed on Oahu. A third officer, Army Colonel Jessica Whaley, is also part of the lawsuit. A second town hall meeting about the legal action is set for tomorrow at 6 p.m. at the AMVETS West Oahu Veterans Center in Eva Beach. Figuring out how to replace Aloha Stadium has already cost taxpayers $20 million. But where's all that money gone? Well, Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaze Level joins us this morning for our reality check. Hi, Blaze. Hey, morning, Catherine. So, yeah, you basically got the skinny on, uh, you know, where all that money got paid out to, all the contractors. Yeah, so after Governor Ige, uh, you know, sort of announced that they wanted to steer away from this public-private partnership. We started thinking, you know, what did we spend our money on in regards to the stadium? We knew it was a lot. We weren't quite sure how much. So, you know, we filed a records request uh, late last year and have been slowly getting, steadily getting uh, the documents that show all this. It's it, it was a lot of pages of invoices and receipts to go through. But what this basically tells us is that, you know, the value of this contract for replacing Aloha Stadium really ballooned over the years. And so far, taxpayers have spent, you know, close to $20 million on all of these plans, much of which may not be usable now that 
Governor Josh Green is uh, sort of following in his predecessor's footsteps and taking the stadium in a different direction. Well, you know, gosh, I mean, you know, I know that the the, the ticket, right, the, the price tag for the stadium, we've been hearing how it's going to be ballooning because of all the, you know, construction costs and all. But, yeah, when you really just sit down to say, all right, what did we get for $20 million? Right, and we're not even, you know, this is, isn't even – at the construction phase yet. This is just, you know, the due diligence and pre-planning and paperwork that goes into everything before you start construction. And in 2017, the legislature originally budgeted about $10 million for all of that. About two years later, 2019, they appropriated an additional $20 million for the planning work. So about $30 million total. Uh, you know, much of that's been spent so far and one of the reasons for the growing costs we got a bunch of these contract extensions from the state and they showed the costs really ballooning in 2021 and during that year that's when you know the decision was made to bifurcate the procurement process and try to pursue two developments on parallel tracks as the state's words for it they wanted on one hand to develop the stadium itself Right, build a new Aloha Stadium, and on the other track, they wanted to develop the real estate around it. And the idea behind that was, as part of the you know public-private partnership on the stadium, you would have this real estate development going that could accrue revenue for the state, that could help pay off whatever payments um, need to be made on the stadium or to the developer and business that would be operating it into the future. Um, that the, sort of figuring out how that would work, that's what the documents showed us really grew the cost. And that's sort of what the governor is steering away from. You know, he told us a few weeks ago that they got a cost-benefit analysis back from one of the um, financial agencies that they were working with, and it showed that it would be much more expensive to pursue the P3 model for the stadium, and they're opting to do this, they call it design-build-operate uh, maintain. You'll hear the word D-bomb used a lot in the next couple of weeks, and that that's sort of the, the direction they're taking it. But it, it means that a lot of the plans that they produced so far, you can't be used. The state estimates that about $13 million of the plans can't be used, um, while $6 million can. Wow. Well, and, and, you know, I know they've talked about, what, $350 million just to do the stadium, right? And, uh, you know, but it's just, yeah, a lot of uh, energy and money uh, put towards something uh, you know, we'll see if the UH actually builds the stadium, right? Because that was one of the ideas. Um, but your your story actually uh, details the the contractors, so folks can um, uh, if they want to find out more can can go to your story and see those numbers. Yeah, and we've also detailed their travel-related expenses, including meals that taxpayers paid for, uh, business class flights that, uh, the, the, that the consultants took, and even rent on a Kakaoka condo. And uh, Stacy Jones, he's the principal at Crawford Architects, he said that uh, those business class flights are kind of necessary for them to work on the plane, and they also rented that condo because it was, you know, during a time of intense work and would be cheaper than a hotel. But, you know, basically taxpayers footed the bill for a lot of those expenses on top of the fees that they were already paying for the planning work that went into the stadium. Anything else that uh, uh, stuck out for you? It's sort of still the uncertainty of it all. We don't know what's going to happen with this contract. We don't know what's going to happen with the stadium. That's really up to the stadium authority. They've got a meeting tomorrow morning where they'll be discussing um, you know, some of that. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I'm sure we'll be tracking that. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks again. That was reporter Blaze Lovell with today's Reality Check. Um, you can read that story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with Homa Nights, offering art experiences, live performances, and bites and beverages, with galleries open late on Fridays and Saturdays until 9 p.m. HonoluluMuseum.org. 
tens of thousands of Israelis, including diplomats, other government officials, universities, and Israel's largest trade union, have launched a nationwide strike in protest against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The surging mass movement seeks to defend Israel's judiciary, and now Israeli democracy may hang in the balance too. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Support for HPR comes from Hakawone, committed to building a neighborhood in Kaka'ako Makai where all are welcome, offering keiki and kupuna care, and including a cultural center, farmers markets, and housing options. Hakawone.com. Sometimes the issues we cover on our show prompt listeners to share their questions, comments, and stories with us. Uh, Those messages come by our talkback line or by email. And here's a note we received last week, Wednesday, after one of our interviews mentioned the self-certification process and the uh, building permit process. Uh, In this morning's show, I heard the interview with the female developer regarding a downtown office building being converted to residential use. She spoke of self-certification. Meanwhile, yesterday's NPR had an account from post-earthquake Turkey, in which the reporter pointed out several ruined buildings were new luxury condominiums which had been self-certified. I urge the City Department of Planning and Permitting to not allow self-certification. Mahalo, Laura Fink. Well, we were curious as to whether that was an accurate depiction of the situation and whether Oahu was at risk for similar results like we saw in Turkey should the Honolulu City Council pass Bill 6, which would allow self-certification. The conversations with Russell Subiano talked to Todd Hassler, a local architect and president of the Honolulu chapter of the American Institute of Architects. How much do you know about self-certification in other countries? Is it possible that the self-certification process in Turkey is flawed in some way and may have contributed to flawed construction? Yeah, so my understanding, the issue with the destruction in Syria and Turkey, you know, many of those buildings were relatively new, and you would assume that they would be designed to withstand an earthquake as the one that they just had, which wasn't a large earthquake. But my understanding is that it's not necessarily the self-certification or even the building codes that were the issue. The issue was the enforcement during construction. An architect can self-certify and then during construction, you know, there's no oversight by any other entity. So it lets the contractor, you know, cut corners to save costs and expedite the construction. And there's no oversight on that. So my understanding is that it's the enforcement of the drawings and the kind of checks and balances to confirm that what is being built is a code compliant structure based on the original plans. That seems to be the major flaw in Syria and Turkey, not necessarily the self-certification process, but it's really the enforcement of the code compliance during construction. And just to provide some clarification for this listener and others that might share that same perspective, can you kind of summarize what self-certification is? It's a pretty simple proposal. It's basically just providing alternate paths to obtaining a permit. And one part of that bill is allowing self-certification, which is an architect or engineer basically self-certifying the drawings and it would eliminate the need for the city to review the drawings for code compliance. Now, the bill is very simple. That's basically all it's proposing. And the expectation is that if it gets approved, following the approval, the, the city would draft some administration rules and guidelines for that self-certification. So there's still a lot to kind of figure out as far as how self-certification will be administered by the city. So the bill is basically just approving that the process and then the way that it would be enforced will be following up. So self-certification, there are other jurisdictions that use self-certification. It has been successful in other cities. 
the city of Phoenix is a good example. They've had a self-certification program since 2010, and they have a very specific requirement for uh, applying for self-certification. There's a qualification requirement for the person who is self-certifying. There's a requirement for continuing ed. The architect needs to take classes so that they are up to date with the current codes and regulations. They do have a random audit process, so there's a little bit of checks and balances as far as how how well the, the self-certified professional you know, provides their drawings. There's also insurance requirements. And ultimately, the city still controls the inspection process on those projects. So although there is the ability to avoid the city to review the plans and it's the architect who's required to provide the self-certification, the city still sends inspectors out to the site during construction to confirm that the building is being built to current codes and regulations. So it's not a scenario where the developer or the contractor or the builder takes it upon themselves to say, oh, yeah, I'm checking off all these boxes. We're good. There's there's actual checks and balances in place. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. And another large factor is the type of projects are also limited for self-certification. So some of the excluded projects are high-rise projects, are high hazard projects, are large assembly projects, you know, those are not permitted to be self-certified. So they do limit the projects for low hazard scopes. And for us in Hawaii, you know, we have a pretty thorough checks and balance system where in addition to an architect or engineer, you know, when they sign and seal a set of drawings, it's required by Hawaii State to include verbiage that confirms that the architect or engineer will provide site observations during construction. So other states don't actually have that strict requirement, but Hawaii State does require some level of observation by the architect or engineer throughout the construction to confirm that what is being built actually matches the design of the project. And the city also has regular inspections of the project throughout construction. And then there's also a requirement for special inspections for structural connections and structural components. If they're included in the project, they actually do require a special inspection to confirm again that what is being installed and constructed matches the design which is intended to be code compliant. So there is a very thorough checks and balance system in place here in Hawaii. It sounds like self-certification, or at least Bill 6, is trying to help with this bottleneck at the Department of Planning and Permitting where there's this long backlog of applications that need to be reviewed. Correct. You know, if the self-certification administrative rules limit the type of projects that would be permitted to go through this process. The expectation is that they would be very small projects, you know, single family homes or tenant improvements, fit outs, projects that don't necessarily require a change in use, a change in egress, a change in occupancy or hazard level. All of those type of projects are kind of low hanging fruit to go through this process. And that represents a large portion of the permits that are with the city. So to have an opportunity to remove those from our city plan reviewers would certainly help expedite the permit process. That's really the intent of the city and this bill. I think that helps clarify what types of buildings and what types of construction the self-certification is intended for. I know the bill is still being considered by the city council, and I know the rules aren't in place. What could potentially be the penalty or the consequences if a self-certification here is not done correctly? So the city of Phoenix, they do have random audits, and I'm not really clear on the discipline action against any audit that determines there was an oversight on confirming code compliance. But I'm assuming it's up to the jurisdiction to determine how they've handled that. On some other processes that the city has, there's 
kind of a three strike rule where if there's an oversight three times, you know, there could be the option to kind of remove the license for that individual for a certain amount of time. So there are certain, uh, I'm not sure how to qualify it. I guess disciplines is is the way to, to kind of use the term. There are various disciplines that the city could enforce, but as of now, you know, those administration rules that are going to be following the approval of the bill are, are not known. And we're looking forward to kind of sharing with the city how other cities run a successful self-certification program and certainly include any audit requirements or, you know, discipline actions that could be enforced. Thank you so much for your time, Todd. Really appreciate it. No worries, Russell. Let me know if you need anything else. That was AIA Honolulu President and Architect Todd Hassler talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. They were discussing how the self-certification process might look like on Oahu if the city council passes Bill 6. We were prompted to take a closer look at the issue after a listener sent us an email. If you have a question or a comment for us, call our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And we now go to this week's Manu Minute. One of our most endangered native birds lives on the Valley Isle and could soon be helped by recent uh, approved mosquito controls. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the uh, QBQ, or the Maui Parrot Bill. The Kiwikiu, or Maui Parrot Bill, is found only in the highest elevation forests on Maui. At barely more than 100 remaining individuals in the wild, it's one of the rarest and most endangered birds in the world. It's also one of the most unusual. As their name implies, the upper bill of these birds is sharply hooked like that of a parrot, and, helped by their strong neck muscles, they use this bill to shred and crush small branches and twigs of a variety of native tree species in search of their favorite food, tasty grubs that live under the bark. These stoutly built green and yellow birds rarely sing, but when they do, it's the best way for biologists to detect them. Kiwikiu are currently restricted to a relatively small patch of rainforest on Haleakala, generally above the elevations where mosquitoes carrying avian malaria might pose a threat, but unfortunately the mosquitoes are moving up in elevation with global warming. An attempt was made in 2019 to translocate some birds to other forests on Maui to help expand the population, but most of these birds were bitten by disease-carrying mosquitoes and died within a few weeks of release. Amazingly, a lone male from this group was recently found alive and well after having not been seen for almost two years. One reason it's difficult to help increase the populations of these birds is that they have at most one baby per year, and then the juveniles are dependent on their parents for 12 months or longer. A debate is ongoing about the best ways to save this bird from extinction, which could happen in the next decade or two if nothing is done. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about porcelain tile by Royal Mosa, made using recycled water and hydroelectric power to create floor and wall tiles inspired by trends in design and architecture. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marsh Cafe, we hear from the team at Oceanet about an innovation called Blast Ninja. We'll find out how the Oceanet Aerospace team found a way to leverage jet fighter noise reduction to create a quiet, abrasive blast nozzle. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marsh Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. Ho'ani amaka'u pena'a'ka'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a
This week, Campbell Estate heiress Abigail Cabana-Nicoa was laid to rest at Mauna Alo, the Royal Mausoleum, in a private cemetery attended by members of Hale Na'ali'i o Hawaii, the House of the High Chiefs or Nobles. The group originally was composed of many descendants of Hawaiian monarchs, our Ali'i. Kavananakoa had been a member of the Benevolent Society for 60 years and held a high-ranking position in the group. The members had stood guard at the mausoleum last month after Kavananakoa lay in state at Iolani Palace and then was transferred to the chapel for funeral services for a select group of the community. Hale Na Ali'i o Hawaii says it is their kuleana to take care of their own, and the public services uh, drew more than 100 of its members from across the state to pay homage to her and the Kabananakoa line. Hailama Farden is the premier of the group. He says there are funeral rituals and cultural traditions that they honor. Some are publicly shared, some are not. Here's Harden, uh, Farden explaining the rich history that played out at the palace and at the Royal Mausoleum. We sat down with him last week before Kavana Nakoa's final private services were held on Monday. The Haleonaliu Hawaii is a royal society, means it has its ties and establishment to the kingdom. When it first appeared, it was called the Haleonawa Society, Haleonawa, actually the second Haleonawa Society in the time of King Kalakaua. And it was a secretive society. Um, I guess it had some flavor in Masonic rituals. But what was brilliant about the king is he wanted to provide equity to the standing of Hawaiians. So anything he did, we're looking at the Western world, he also considered how it equally fit in the Hawaiian perspective. So in the work of the Halenawa back in the um, in the kingdom, he actually did scientific work. He talked about the weight of the world, the circumference of the world, compared the astrological signs in the Western world to what did, what month was this in Hawaiian, and, and uh, looked at the, the measuring system called the Ka'au system which measured by four, a four-base system, so 440, 400, 4,000, and continued that. So the purpose was really to capture the information, to keep it, to document it, and um, so much of it was still, I guess, oral in many ways, but you know, I'm sure you know Hawaii was one of the l- most literate nations in the world in Hawaiian language, so they began already writing as soon as they had the ability to. The Hale Nawa seemed to almost disappeared in 1891 at the death of King Kalakaua, its founder. But yet, there are remnants to see it popping up, um, for example, at the death of Prince David Kavananakua, the members were there. They served as pallbearers, as kahili bearers, and you can see them because of the regalia they're wearing. And then, 1911, the Haleonaliohawa'i was rebirthed, I guess. It was organized. It was called... Uh, Kahaleonali'i at that time. There are pictures in the newspaper in 1914 show them standing on the steps of Yolani Palace commemorating Kamehameha Day. The organization maybe had, it had a lot of members, but at a certain point around 1917, 16, 17, I guess there were some struggles and um, eventually closing. Now at the Queen's death in November of 1917, I guess there was a desire to re-establish. So going to the Ali, who was present here, married to Prince David, was Princess Vahika Ahula. Prince David had died already. Princess Abigail Campbell, Kamananakoa. She, I guess in, in a very cultural way, authorized permission to re-establish the Haleonali. And it was called on April 7th, it was reopened, Haleonali'i o Hawaii. And so since 1918, April 7, 1918, to this day, we've grown to seven chapters statewide. And our organization, much like the other royal societies, we have many strains that are similar, and yet we have some different areas that we, let's say, we observe. One thing that we are unique in, whether we call it out, and maybe they have not even mentioned it to you, we do take care of our members in times of, of especially death, Um, practicing the funeral rituals passed down from many generations of our people. When Victoria Kamamalu established the Ka'ahumanu Society in 1864, one of the key components in establishing the Ka'ahumanu Society was the memory that uh, High Chiefess Victoria Kamamalu had of the thousands of people who were left dying 
because of various ep- epidemics. And she understood that this is something wrong, that, you know, the Hawaiian people never die like this unattended or in such a horrible state. So when they established the Ka'ahumanu Society in 1864, which was the first of the four royal societies in the kingdom, it was established with the intent to take care of the members, especially in time of death, tending to them, so that there was kind of a promise set. No member would be left alone in their death. And so all of the Ahahui will stand guard at their members' funerals. Uh, we may stand differently or we may hold kahili or not hold kahili or face inward or face outward or whatever it be, but we're still there to tend to our members. So one of the h- highest responsibilities of the Haleonali Ohova is to assure that our members are not alone in their death, in their, in their burial. We pledge to take them to their graves, meaning escort them, guard them, be with them. That's just one of the many of the uh, founding aspects of it. But that's one of the reasons why organization was established. Talk about how you become a member. What is the process? Do you have to be invited? Do you have to be uh, descended from Ali'i? Oh, you know, that's, that's kind of a neat story. So in the older days, I was told, although I've not seen evidence of this, that you provided your genealogy and it connected you to an Ali'i. Unlike Mamakakawa, that is still a requirement, but in Haleonali, it is not a requirement. You know, when one submits an application there, also it, it is a sponsored application. So a sponsor and endorser will propose uh, an application. And, you know, we still have some remnants of thoughts that the people we're proposing will be good candidates, that they would probably. Um, um, have aloha and respect for the traditions of our people, especially the royal histories, because even though um, you know our kingdom is in exile, have you, it is still important to respect the traditions established by our monarchy and our kingdom. It is our culture. We know that as long as we hold these traditions, these mores, or ku'una, as we say in Hawaiian, or ku'una, that part of our culture still thrives and still is, still is alive. And I think, I think it is a very worthy culture of promoting. We have an honorary membership that can be bestowed on members, whether they're Hawaiian or not, because, you know, there are folks who may not join because they threw an application. But generally, a member is of Hawaiian ancestry. They have a connection to, I guess, the culture or desire to continue their their pathway of learning their culture and and then being connected with the royal histories of our Hawaii. Our statewide membership is around 500 and you know it's interesting in different organizations I belong to I've noticed a a decrease in membership and I I look at it in a practical sense that folks are busier now. Folks are holding two or three jobs. Even if I look in the history of Haleonali Hawaii, they used to have two monthly meetings and they're in regalia. So our meetings are in regalia, whereas other organizations may choose to be in um, say civilian clothes, I guess, mm-hmm. un- until there's a ceremony. But Haleonali does meet in regalia. I think the fact that people are more busy lends them less time to participate in the work that we do. Uh, Even in a Western, actually two Western organizations I belong to, I notice the membership has decreased there too. And and talk about the the cloaks that you wear and the the symbolism. The ahu that we wear are symbolic of the noble ancestral history of our royalty. So it is called Haleonali'i o Hawaii House of the chiefs, I guess, um, of Hawaii. The House of Nobles were one group of the Haleonali way back in the kingdom, but this is not that. We wear different ranks, so each officer has a designated rank to their office, and um, there are in excess of 20 different ranks. Some of them are ceremonial or ritualistic, like your priest would be, or your you know your chaplain like that, your historian. But then we also have functional or administrative roles, like a treasurer and a financial secretary and a tre- and a, a president and and those kinds of ranks. So each rank has its own designated design of their ahu, their cape. 
the core of it does come from the traditions of our of our Ali. But I do not believe our capes mimic any assigned design from any ancient line of families. At least I haven't seen any of the old cape. And certain things, you know, we'll discuss publicly and certain mm-hmm. things we, we don't. And when people are members, they'll learn more. What I do love about it is the use of the language in the rituals, the use of the... Um, um, so we could have done, even during Kalakaua's time, certain groups, more Western rankings. And the fact that our ahu, our capes, are ranked in a traditional manner is nice. And yes, we do use the materials that are more available today, which are felt and velvet, and some do still have satin. We, from the beginning of the Haleona Li'i Hawaii, the members wore both velvet and felt capes. Some organizations have moved over to reconstitute and bringing back the feather capes, and that's beautiful. It, it is costly. It is also time-consuming, but it doesn't mean that Haleona Lee wouldn't consider going to the form of using feather capes. When we started the organization, it wasn't that way. We did use our, um, although we had six feather capes in a treasury, um, it really was uh, the felt and velvet that started our organization off. Unlike the Mamakakawa, that if you had your feather cape of your family, you would wear it. When I saw you last, it was at the palace for mm-hmm. the service for uh, Abigail Kamada Nakoa. Yes, yes. And I don't know how that all works. I mean, I know they're working on her, uh, on constructing her crypt, mm-hmm. and then she'll be laid to rest. But I don't know, what is the protocol? You know, will there be a member of the societies there? Um, you know, how does that Absolutely. all work? Absolutely. Yeah, um, well, Haleona Ali'i will be there because she was our member and our a member of our Supreme Council, which we call the Kumu Ahakalani. She was our third vice regent, and she held that position for in excess of 60 years, a very long time. So the cape I wore that day, if you saw, I, there were times I was wearing my velvet cape and there were times I was wearing a f- the feather cape. That cape was one of the six capes that were passed down from the Halenawa through the Haleonali'i o Hawaii. We, we've retained them since, you know, they go back to the 1880s, those capes when they were created. And then is there anything you can share about uh, the service and the participation uh, when she's finally laid to rest there at Mauna Ala? Well, um, I think that's good. a good question. So we have rituals. So we have rituals that run our meetings, and we have funeral rituals that were executed at her at Mauna Ala mostly because we watched her overnight, and that's something that we would do for our, our highest-ranking officers to do an all-night. And then throughout, you may have seen in the palace, we did some of the different rituals. So some of that's all um, done. There is a burial ritual, which we will conduct um, when that time comes. Our point is to honor the traditions of her. The beautiful thing is her adopted mother, who is her grandmother, biological grandmother, was the one who saw the importance of, I guess, promulgating these uh, rituals into written form. So back in 1921 or so, they took their traditions and wrote them down. And in our minutes of that time, she captures the, I guess, the satisfaction she felt in the fact that the elders of that time, although they were, they brought their wisdom together to put the rituals together. And we're talking 1921, 1920 and 21. So if you think a person born in 1840 would be 80 years old at that time, 1840, they brought those those elders' thoughts together to create these rituals. Um, she was saying that, oh, maybe we, we've waited too long for this. Um, I just can't imagine what, where we would be today without those captured rituals. So the mm-hmm. same rituals that the princess oversaw back in 1920 are the same rituals that we continue to share for our members at their burial. Our responsibility is to be there to conduct our burial rituals, and then we will we will leave. But um, the the burial rituals are something that if someone was there, they would hear it and see it. It's, I see. You know, something that we would. Um, I, I wouldn't. I don't really talk it. about yeah, any of our yeah. rituals. But if someone was there and they happened to catch it, right. they would hear. It. It's a mix of of prayer with cultural mores or 
protocol rituals that that are spoken. And I do notice that some of these legacy, honoring the legacies of different Ali continue. I think mm-hmm. there's a mutual love and respect for our traditions. And I think that that's probably one of the largest of all reasons we're formed. We have been hearing from Hailama Farden with the former secret society, Hale Na Ali o Hawaii, the House of Chiefs, that includes descendants of Hawaiian monarchy. We talked to him last week before private gravesite services for Abigail Kavanadakoa took place on Monday. Uh, she was a longtime member and high-ranking third vice regent. Construction on the uh, final uh, touches of Kavanadakoa's crypt uh, at Mauna Ala are still underway. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, uh, we'll hear from the sons and daughters of Hawaiian warriors and from the daughters of Hawaii as we continue our look at royal societies and their place in our Hawaiian Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online by searching for the Conversation Podcast on our website or on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.